able, uh, I invite you to stand with me. We're going to read, <coughs> excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 2. We're continuing the series that we started just a couple weeks ago, the summer series in Nehemiah. Starting in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I will read out loud, you can follow along. In the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should I not Why should my face not be sad when the city, the places of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates and the fortress of the city and for the wall of the city and for the house that I occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So uh, summer is a great time for good stories. Many of you, if you have a trip to the beach, sit out on the beach and you've got a, perhaps a, a mystery novel that you're reading, or some of you who are history buffs love to kind of do a little histor- historical narrative or maybe a historical biography. Um, some of you don't like reading at all, so you just hit the movies. And they got these big summer blockbusters, right? These great stories. It's a great time for stories. I love a good story, especially when there's a, a hero that's uh, inspiring and captivating. I, love, I don't think I ever outgrew the childish desire to be a hero. I'd see these movies with these, these adventure movies, and there's this, this strong, courageous, brave hero willing to sacrifice himself, determined, focused to save the day. I love that. There's something captivating about a hero who's willing to go any, to, 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 to pay the cost to save the day. We're looking at Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is actually a very captivating story. I don't know if you've ever read it, or read it recently, or read it a long time ago. But as you reread it with us this summer, I'd invite you to consider what a captivating story this is. And not only is it a great story, but there is a wonderful hero. Nehemiah is this amazing, courageous, bold, smart hero. It really does save the day in an amazing way. So what we're going to be looking at today, and uh, 
as we look at this, it is a story, but it's not just a story. I mean, we believe that uh, this, this actually happened. And just a little uh, fun fact to throw out there. As I was doing research on this passage, it was cool to see how much archaeological evidence actually backs up the historical uh, veracity of this passage. Artifacts that are found that actually mention specific governors like Sanballat and Tobiah in the, in the region. King Cyrus of Persia, who actually sent the exiles back, there's actually artifacts speaking of these people. So this is history. This actually happened. But in addition to it being history, it is. It is inspiring. And I think God's word is intended to be understood. So we learn. But it's also intended to challenge us, to captivate us, to draw us into the story and to change our hearts, to change our lives. So we go out a little bit different than we came in. So that's the goal. As we read this story, we come away, I pray, changed, challenged, as we see who God is relative to Nehemiah and the nation of Israel. Now, what we're going to do today, basically, is I want to give you a a brief uh, historical background that leads up into chapter 2 of Nehemiah, where we are today. And the reason is because this is a key turning point in the whole book. It's only chapter 2, but it's a key hinge. It's a turning point that really launches the whole book forward and launches the whole history of Israel this, uh, from this point on in a very different direction. So it's a, it's a very critical moment to appreciate the tension. It's good to kind of get a background. So we're going to do that. I'm going to look at a little background, but then we're going to jump into this passage. And there's going to be three things that I want to point out. As we read it, I want to pull things out that we can apply to our lives. First of all, I want to look at weakness Nehemiah's weakness, Israel's weakness in this passage. But then I also want to look at Nehemiah's boldness. Not only his weakness, but his boldness and how his boldness is used in a mighty way. And then finally, I want to end the sermon by talking about, thinking about, encouraging you to meditate on the power of God. Weakness, boldness, and the power of God. So, Nehemiah, for those of you who... uh, know something about the Bible. This is in the Old Testament, and it tells a story as, as a book of the Old Testament uh, of the nation of Israel. Now, Nehemiah, if you were to look, if you were to open up your Bible, it's going to be kind of midway, maybe actually a little bit towards the beginning of the Old Testament, right? Kind of not quite in the middle, a little bit before the middle of the Old Testament. But if this Old Testament was ranged chronologically, right? Like if you were to pull out the books of the Bible and reinsert them chronologically, and this is going to be the last book of the Old Testament, right before the Gospels. Right? There's a gap chronologically between Nehemiah and the Gospels, but this is it. This is the latest thing that is recorded. So in order to understand it and really appreciate the book of Nehemiah, which is, as I said, the end of the Old Testament, we need to go back to the beginning. This is the end of the Old Testament. Let's go back to the beginning, work our way so we see what's going on, what's happening here. And I want to give this background introduction in five acts, all right? And this is going to to briefly go through this to jump us into the text. Act one, all right, and most of you know this story. Act one, creation. Everyone was created to be God's people, to dwell with God, to know God, to be blessed by God. That was the original intent. God created Adam and Eve, and it was paradise. Nothing wrong. And man's identity, woman's identity, is to be loved, to worship God, to know him. 
Act 1 doesn't last very long, as you may know. Act 2 jumps in, and it's the fall. See, Adam and Eve, while they were created to worship God, they don't. They turn away. Sin separates us from God. And so, think about this imagery. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. And that was the place where God would dwell with them, the garden. What happens after they sin? They're kicked out. There is this physical separation which speaks to a relational separation. Think about this. I don't know if you are married or if you ever have a relationship where there is ever a conflict. Probably most of us. Uh, My wife and I don't argue a lot. Every once in a while we do. And when that happens, there is this relational distance. There's this physical distance which speaks to that. Maybe you can relate. You have a friend where you get in an argument with. And what happens? You have an argument and you separate physically from that person for at least a time period. That physical separation speaks to the relational separation. That's exactly what happened. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, there was this physical separation which spoke to a broken relationship. That's act two. But act three, God is gracious. He doesn't leave them to die, to, to wallow in misery, in his grace and compassion. Even though he doesn't have to, he chooses to chase after them, to show grace, to bring them back to a relationship with himself. He chooses certain people to bring back to himself. This is the story of the Old Testament, right? Think about this. Just a few chapters on, he chooses Noah. And he says, of all the people, I'm choosing you and your family. And I will save you and I will bring you into relationship with me. Moses, right? He chooses Moses. Before Moses, he chooses Abraham. And then there's the nation of Israel. And he chooses the nation of Israel and says, I'm going to love you. You're going to be mine. I'm going to pour out my grace on you. And as this nation gets formed, it's really important that as the nation of God, they're different. They're separate. There's something unique about them. Which makes sense, right? If they are God's nation, they're they're loved in a unique way. They're blessed in a unique way. They're giving hope in a unique way. And they're holy in a unique way. That's not true of all the other nations out there. At least that was the intent The intent was that Israel would reflect the holiness of God. What happened, in fact, is that Israel, rather than than cherishing that warm relationship, Israel turned away, broke away from God. So as a nation, even sitting in the promised land with all the blessings that God has poured out on them, they reject God and they turn away. As a result, Act 4, they go into exile. Israel is is captured by Babylon. This world superpower comes in and destroys the city, breaks down the walls, tears down the temple, and grabs the people and pulls them out of the promised land until they are dissolved among the nations. You ever put something in water and see it dissolve? It's, It's like it's got no distinct identity. It's just dissolved. That's what happened in exile. The nation of Israel dissolved. Act 4. Act 5, though, and leading into Act 5 is the question, so is God not faithful? Because he had made promises to care for these people. He had made promises to say, you are my chosen people and I will never abandon you. What happens in exile? Despite all appearances, God says, well, I'm going to pull you back 
I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to reform you so that you are once again my people. There's a small remnant that he allows to come back from exile in Babylon back to the promised land. He does this through the king. The Persian king comes in. So what happens historically is Babylon was the nation that destroyed Jerusalem. Well, Babylon got conquered by the Persian Empire. And King Cyrus of the Persian Empire said, Hey, you guys go back. You Jerusalem exiles, go back to your land. And so he sends them back. Thus begins the process of rebuilding Act 5, which is where we are today. The Jews are back in the land of Jerusalem. But then ask yourselves, what are they coming back to? Right? This has been over 50 years of exile. And what happens when they go to exile, the Persian Empire, they leave the weakest, the poor, to just to, to the, the ones who have no hope of prospering in the land. Well, others, other people come in to try to take over the land. So they're coming back into enemy territory, into a place of ruins. That's what we see. I think I have a little pictorial. Uh, here we go. Very simplistic, obviously. But imagine this. All right, this is Jerusalem in its heyday. It's probably a little bigger than this. But you see a couple of key things that I want to draw your attention to so you'll understand how it relates to our passage today. First of all, you have the city wall around Jerusalem. As we're going to see, the city wall is very important. Inside the city wall, you have a temple, which is different from the city wall. Uh, It's the place of worship, the place of sacrifices. Inside the temple, there's an altar where the sacrifices were made. And then you see this is just representing, it's kind of a tablet, representing the law. The entire (coughs) city of Jerusalem, the entire nation of Israel was founded on the law of God. So these are all very important things to think about when you understand what Jerusalem was. Now, this is before exile. But remember I said as I was taking you through the Acts leading up to Nehemiah, Babylon came in and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, Slide two. All right, so you see that? They come in, they wipe everything out. The wall's torn down. The law is, 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 it doesn't function anymore because the law is taken away and the people, the, the prophets and the priests, teachers of the law are taken away. Temple's broken down, altars destroyed. Because this is what the exiles come back to. They come back to this ruinous city with no city walls, no law, no temple, no altar. Well, the first thing they do is they rebuild the altar. Okay? So no wall, no temple, no law, but at least they rebuild the altar. Because they realize that if they're going to come back and they have a hope as the people of God, they need to worship God as he has instructed them to, which includes animal sacrifices. After the altar, they rebuild the temple. Again, they recognize that their identity, their only hope is to be the people of God, and so they want the house of God to worship him. After the temple, Ezra comes back. All right, so this is, this, this is the book right before Nehemiah. Ezra comes back, and he does two things. He comes back, he was a master teacher of the law. All right, he was a, a great lawyer of the, of the law of God, and he came back, and he instructed everyone in the law of God, which they desperately needed. But not only did he do that, the Persian king said, hey, I want you to go back and I want you to teach the law, but not only that, I'm going to send you riches. And so what you're going to do is you're going to bring all of these riches back to the temple as it originally was. 
so you can worship your God in a proper fashion. This right here is a pictorial representation uh, representation of where we are in Nehemiah chapter 2. They've got the temple. They've got the altar back. They've got the law. They've, they've got the exiles back. This is looking good, but the problem, there's no wall. Well, you might think, no big deal, right? At least they've gotten everything else. Here's the problem. They are surrounded by enemies. The enemies are taking notice of what they're doing. The enemies are taking notice that they are rebuilding the infrastructure of Jerusalem and they don't like it. The whole book of Ezra is the story of this opposition with enemies coming in and taunting them and trying to derail their process. They hate these exiles coming back, rebuilding Jerusalem. But not only that, but as soon as Ezra comes and loads up the temple with these riches from Persia, what happens? They have a bullseye on them. Enemies all around, riches galore in the temple, no way to protect themselves. It's kind of like rock climbing without a harness or a rope, right? When you get up high, you don't say, wow, this is awesome. At least I've made it three-fourths of the way up here. No big deal if I can't make it the rest, right? No, the higher you climb, the more dangerous it is. In a sense, that's where the nation of Israel were after exile. They had climbed high in rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the law, rebuilding the altar, and yet they're at the most dangerous place yet. Which that leads us into what we read last week. In the last two weeks, actually, Nehemiah chapter 1, the report from Hanani. He comes, and Nehemiah 1, verse 3, Hanani comes, And he gives this report to Nehemiah, and he says this. The remnant there in Jerusalem, in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. They are in great trouble and shame. Nehemiah hears this, and his response is that he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays, he pours out his heart to God. He does this for four months. There's a clue at the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. There's two months marked out. Chislev and Nisan. These are two different months and the span between them is four months. For four months, Nehemiah has been groaning in turmoil. And then comes Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before them, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Consider this. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, as we learned the very end of chapter 1. As the cupbearer to the king, he had presumably hundreds, perhaps thousands of times, come before the king, giving him his wine to drink. Servant, bodyguard in a sense, tasting it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Over and over and over again. He's been in his presence. The story makes it clear that Nehemiah had a relationship with this king. Uh, He seemed to be favored. Over and over again, he'd come before the king, but this is different. This time, four months after he hears the news of the downfall of Jerusalem, how it's a sitting duck in the midst of enemies, 
Nehemiah comes and he decides he's finally going to take his mask off before the king. Kind of get the concept of a mask, right? We, we do this often. Um, you were kind of having this internal turmoil. Maybe it was a bad day. Maybe it was a bad morning. Maybe you this morning are kind of putting on this happy face as you come um, so that you can present well, right? Internally, though, it's a different story. Well, that was Nehemiah. For four months, it says he prayed, fasted, mourned, grieved. This was a man dying inside, and yet for four months, he had come before the king over and over and over again with his mask, his happy mask, his content mask, his pleasant mask. But now he decides to take it off and let this king see what's really going on inside of him. Now, you, you think about your own mask, and there's a risk taking your masks off, correct? Correct. If you do that, you risk being misunderstood. You're vulnerable to an extent. Especially if you do this around acquaintances, not close friends. It's easy to be misunderstood and to be hurt emotionally. Well, imagine kind of kicking it up a notch. It's not just an acquaintance or a coworker, but what if it's your boss? You go in front of your boss and you take off your mask and you see kind of the depression and the, the inner angst inside. Well, there's a lot at stake then. You risk being judged incompetent or unqualified for your job. But consider Nehemiah's perspective. Not only is it, is it an acquaintance, not only is it a, a boss, supervisor, but it's the king. It's someone, Artaxerxes, who could easily, on a whim, have snuffed him out, to, have killed him, have, have executed him for displeasing him by coming before him grieved. You see, in a sense, Nehemiah's grief, his sorrow could have been reflective of the king, right? The king could have taken it personally. What are you doing in my presence? I have given you all this, and you dare to come before me in grief. How dare you? There's precedent for servants of the king in this manner being executed. Think about the story of Joseph. It's a different empire, but it's, you see the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, the cupbearer and the baker come before the pharaoh and they get thrown in jail. That's where Joseph meets them. They get thrown in jail and actually the baker gets executed because he displeased the king. Presumably in some small matter, like coming before him without his mask. Not what it was. The king uh, of Persia, right before King Artaxerxes, was King Xerxes. And he got rid of his wife, the queen, simply because she displeased him in a small matter. There was a lot at stake here. Tons of precedent for Nehemiah to think that as he's coming before the king, his life is on the line. It was. Not only, though, is his life on the line because he's displeased, because he's grieving, because he's depressed inwardly. The reason for his depression also puts him in even more danger. You see, he's depressed because the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins. But guess who was responsible for Jerusalem lying in ruins? King Artaxerxes. You see, four years ago, four years prior to this, King Artaxerxes had issued a decree commanding the rebuilding to stop. You see, what had happened is some of the enemies that I told you about, they had gotten angry about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so they wrote this slanderous false letter to King Artaxerxes. And they said that, these enemies said that as soon as the city was rebuilt, they're going to rebel. They're going to revolt. 
And so the king Artaxerxes says, well, if that's the case, they need to stop building. And that's the reason for Jerusalem lying in ruins at this time. And what Nehemiah is going to do is come and tell him that not only is he grieved because of the state of Jerusalem, which is the king's fault, at least in part, but he's going to ask the king implicitly to reverse his decree. This is not a smart political move, and a lot is at stake. But yet he continues. He continues and says, And why should I not be sad when the city, the place of my fathers, are in ruin and its gates destroyed by fire? So I'm going to pause for a second in the story and just going to highlight these, these three points we told you about. First of all, weakness, right? When I see the story and I read the story, what jumps out to me is Nehemiah's weakness. Not just Nehemiah's, but Israel's re- weakness. They, it, they're ruined, they're broken vulnerable, helpless. Nehemiah, his life, as I said, is on the line, and all hope in this story is hanging by a thread. This is a very dark time. In fact, this profound weakness is kind of like the backdrop for this entire story. There is darkness. There is very little hope. And if anything is going to come and make things better, it's going to be coming in the darkest of night. Now, I may be a little pessimistic, but I think at times, at least at times, our lives are similar to this. In some way, at least. In one category, perhaps, maybe two, maybe a lot of categories. Our life feels dark. It feels broken. It feels ruined, at least in certain categories. We feel weak. The Bible says we live in a fallen world. We should expect it. We can't expect heaven on earth right now because that's not what this is. There will be heaven in heaven one day. Right now, we live in a fallen world. And there is weakness. There is brokenness. And one of the things that I think is important to, to note in this story is the weakness of Nehemiah, the weakness of Israel. Because when you see the profound darkness of this story, then it reminds you, it should remind you and me, that the darkness that we see around us is not without hope. Think about uh, pharmaceutical companies or, or the whole healthcare, uh, the, the whole health healthcare field. It's a great field. Grateful for medicine, but the whole premise of this field is that life is broken, is that we are broken, right? We are physically, we're broken. Oftentimes, mentally, emotionally, we're broken. And so we go and, and we find ways, hopefully, to, to heal ourselves, to find at least a temporary healing. We live in a broken world all around us. Nehemiah 1 and 2 highlights that brokenness. And yet, for you and I, we need to understand, like Nehemiah, we're, we're on chapter 2. There's a lot more chapters ahead. But to appreciate the redemption in the chapters ahead, you have to understand the, broke, the brokenness, the darkness that you start out in. Because grace, hope, redemption is so much more glorious when you see the ruins that's, that were started, that were there at the beginning. In Lord of the Rings, there's this great quote. Uh, <clears throat> it's, in the, it's in the third. It's a time where, where things look really bad. Frodo is, is about to uh, be consumed by the ring. There's, there's evil all around them. And Frodo's all but given up hope. Frodo says to Sam, I can't do this, Sam. Sam says, I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. 
And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even the darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chance of turning back, but they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. They were holding on to the fact that there was some good left in this world, Mr. Frodo, and that it's worth fighting for. See, in this, in this story in Lord of the Rings, at this really dark time, Sam points out that, that the darkness highlights the light all the more. It's in the middle of the night, it's, it's, a, it's pitch black lightning, lights of the entire sky. Why? Because there's this backdrop of darkness. And in this story, the darkness, the weakness, the brokenness, the ruins that are everywhere highlights the hope that is to come. I don't know where you feel brokenness today, but your story is not over, right? There are many chapters to come. And God, this is your hope. This is the unique hope of the Christian faith is that God is not done with you. He is not done with you and your sin and your growth. He is not done with your situations. He is not done. And he's writing a good story. First of all, weakness. But let's continue. Nehemiah 2 continues on. And we see not only weakness, but we see boldness. You see, Nehemiah does let down his mask and he shows the king his despair. The king asks him about it and he openly tells the king the reason for his sorrow. In in fact, the king pitches him a softball that Nehemiah is able to bat out of the park. What are you requesting? The king says. Think about it. The king could have responded in a lot of different ways. We've already talked about the fact that he could have responded in rage. But even put rage off the table, he could have responded in indifference. He's the king. He is the, in charge of the largest empire in the world. And this is his lowly servant coming to him, telling him his sob story. I've got more important things to think about. Thank you very much. Go on pouring my wine. That would have been understandable. Would have made sense. Even better, perhaps, he could have showed him some sympathy and sort of wished him well. That happens a lot, right? Someone comes to you and tells you something that you can't control. You kind of wish them well. I'm sorry. The king doesn't do this, though. He doesn't respond in rage. He doesn't respond in indifference. He doesn't respond in this lame well-wishing. He asks him, what are you requesting of me? This was the moment of truth. Everything thus far had gone well, granted, but this was the moment of truth. And if the king does not grant his request, everything is for naught. And the nation of Israel does not have a good future. Nehemiah 2, verse 4. He's terrified. Nehemiah is. He's already said that. I was afraid. So he prays to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah has been praying for four months. Leading up to this moment, he comes before the king. The king lays it out. Nehemiah, what do you want? In an instant. Nehemiah, like an arrow, shoots an instantaneous prayer up to the Lord. And then he tells him. 
if it pleases the king, let me go back to Judah to rebuild the land that you left desolate. You can imagine the tense silence. Nehemiah says it, he blurts it out, he's praying, he's blurting it out, and then he's waiting. Not breathing, heart stops, waiting. What's going to happen next? Before we go on to that, I just want to reflect on this a little bit. Here's what's happened so far with Nehemiah, the boldness that he showed. Not only does he come and let his mask down, but he does that making a request that he knows the king is not going to like, a request that it's going to be costly for the king. But it doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He gets really, really specific in some of the things he asks. I said to the king, not only let me go back, king, and rebuild the city that you have left desolate, but give me letters to all the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through as I, until I come to Judah. Now, you need to understand this. In the Persian Empire, there were provinces all over the place. And for the most part, the Persian Empire let the provinces rule themselves with some supervision. These provinces, as we've already talked about, especially the province beyond the river, which is near where Judah is, they didn't like this project of being rebuilt, of of having Judah, of having Jerusalem be rebuilt. And so Nehemiah knows that if he's going to go back, he has got to have an official decree okaying his project, or else he's toast. He's never going to make it, going to be thrown in jail, perhaps killed. So, after having the gall to ask the king this initial request, then he says, all right, and one more thing can you give me some letters to all of the governors that I'm going to be passing through along the way? But not only that, this is the boldness of Nehemiah. Not only that, but he says, oh, and by the way, how about a letter to the keeper of the king's forest so that I can gather supplies for this very effort of rebuilding the temple? He's asking the king to finance this endeavor. Not only is he asking permission, but he's asking the king to use Persian resources to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Boldness, gall, stupidity. I don't know what it is, but he's willing to do this. But here's why. He realizes that no one else in the whole empire has the king's ear at this moment like he does. And he knows that his people are out lying in ruins, sitting ducks, in danger, in shame in misery. And he is the one person that can do something about it. So he is willing to step up and to lay everything on the line. His life on the line, his job on the line, his security on the line. Lay everything on the line and ask this request of the king, this very dangerous act, because he has to save his people. Throughout the story of the Bible, you see this hero motif again and again and again and again. And what you see is this. There is a hero who rises up and does what no one else can do. This hero, like King David, you remember the story of King David and Goliath? When David was a little boy. All of the soldiers are around and they are terrified, unwilling to fight Goliath. Someone has to do it for them. And so David steps up, this young man, and says, I will fight him for you guys. The soldiers don't do anything. They sit there terrified, watching this young man overcome the giant on their behalf. Queen Esther, same Persian Empire, she comes before the king because she's the queen, and she has the, queen's, the king's ear, and she intercedes on behalf of the people who are about to be annihilated. The entire Jewish race about to be wiped out. And she comes at the risk of her life 
and goes and steps into the king and intercedes. She's the hero. David's the hero. Nehemiah is the hero. This is a motif that happens over and over and over again. The reason the Bible is packed with hero motifs is because it wants to capture our heart. God wants our hearts to be captivated by this idea of a hero who steps in and does something that we can't do. A hero who's willing to to pay the ultimate sacrifice to save us from misery. All of these heroes all along the way are pointing to the one hero to come, Jesus Christ, who's willing to do what Nehemiah did to stick out his neck to go in front of the king, God of the universe, on behalf of his people who were helpless, who were in misery. You see, sometimes we look at a story like this and we like to put ourselves in the role of the hero, right? We see Nehemiah, we see his boldness, his courage. Yeah, that's me, I do that too. Would you? Do you? In your little moments, in your families, with your kids, with your parents, with your friends, do you show that kind of fortitude, that kind of strength, that kind of courage, that kind of tenacity, that kind of faithfulness to God? Are you the hero? can't speak for you. I can speak for me. I am not the hero. I am not Nehemiah in this story. You know what I am? I am Israel in the story, sitting in ruins, helpless, going to die unless someone comes and rescues me, like Nehemiah comes and rescues the people. Because we're Israel. Jesus is Nehemiah, and he has already come to save us from our ruins, to save us from our brokenness, to bring us to a new life. When we see the boldness of Nehemiah, what that does is it shows us the boldness of Christ and what he did for us. Last point, power of God. What happens? Nehemiah, in the midst of weakness, comes and has this act of boldness. And what happens? The king grants his request. He lets Nehemiah go. And in doing so, he reverses the king's own decree. He grants letters of protection he gives him the, 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 the money, quote-unquote, the, the timber, the supplies he needs to actually do this. Not only that, but verse 9 shows that there was this military entourage that the king, King Artaxerxes, gives to Nehemiah as he goes. Nehemiah is leaving Babylon, going to Jerusalem in this wealth of blessing. Why? Well, Nehemiah was very diplomatic. He's very smart. Clearly, there was a good relationship. At the end of the day, though, Nehemiah himself points to why. Verse 8. He granted all that I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah was able to be bold because he saw the power of God. He saw God's power at work, and he was able to, be, to have faith in that no matter what he saw. When Nehemiah looked outwards, he saw ruins and brokenness and hopelessness. When he looked inward... He saw fear and terror. But when he looked up, he saw the power of God. And that faith, that awareness of God's power enabled him to go and do what he would not have been able to do. Nehemiah knew that there was a God above the greatest king in the world. You and I face similar circumstances in smaller ways. We face these circumstances where we we have these challenges in front of us. 
sins that we struggle with, relationships that we have a difficulty uh, loving, people that we have a hard time loving, jobs that are difficult, financial situations that are difficult. We find ourselves in the midst of these difficult circumstances. And yes, we are not the hero. Jesus is the hero for us. But this is the cool thing about Christianity. When Jesus comes and he is the hero for us, he draws us into the life where we get to follow him. Not perfectly, clearly. Jesus was the only perfect hero. And yet, we get to image him, we get to reflect him in small heroic acts more and more and more until finally one day we get to be with God. We get to be with Jesus in heaven. Consider your life. There is weakness, there is brokenness. Consider your life. You're not the hero that you need. Consider your life. If you are in Christ, then you have a hero who has already redeemed you, who's been strong for you, who's rescued you, and who draws you into a new life of growth and godliness, of obedience to Christ, imperfect yet true. And you get to enact your small acts of heroism throughout your life day after day in the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us. I thank you most of all for this wonderful hero that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who has come, who has died, who has done a good work for us, who has been strong for us, who was, who was courageous for us, who was bold for us. Father, I thank you for this gift. I thank you that when we look at our lives, our, our own hearts, we can have hope not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, but in the work that you are doing, the power that you have. Lord, I thank you for your love, your faithfulness, your commitment to do a good work in us. Father, let us follow you in grace, in heroic acts, as we see our one hero who has saved us from sin, from death, and from hell. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me as we sing.